me is Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kareth Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and weep over her. Then Abraham rose beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose, bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zahar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave at Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field. I give you the cave in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will, I will pay the full price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. So, some of you would be familiar with the uh, smash hit TV show Game of Thrones. Funny place maybe to begin here with Genesis 23, but give me a sec. Uh, Tyrion is one of the most amazing characters in this because, you might be able to see there, he is a little person living in a land of big people. Since his birth, he is mocked in the books as opposed to the TV show. He's also quite deformed. He's an, he's an ugly man as opposed to Peter Dinklage here, quite a handsome man, I think. Uh, and it's interesting because he has one of these incredible story arcs where despite the fact that he is mocked and looked down upon wherever he goes, uh, he rises to great prominence and through his wit and his intelligence, despite the fact that he is a, he's an outsider in this world of big people, uh, he rises. But, 
at the same time, one of the reasons that he's able to rise is that he's not just a little person, he is also born into a very noble and wealthy family. Not just any dwarf uh, could have become everything that Tyrion Lannister becomes. And we're going to see today this tension between being a person who is an outsider and weak and vulnerable, and yet at the same time able to do impressive things because of wealth that one possesses. And it might not immediately seem like that applies to you if you're a believer in Jesus here this morning, but I promise it will, and we'll see how we get there. So this passage is about the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. It says, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. We've been on a journey with Abraham and Sarah for the last ten or so chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, We've seen the way that Sarah has been treated and really mistreated again and again. Uh, Here we we hear news about her death, but so much of Sarah's story has been about how she's been almost an object, handed from one man to another, passed back and forth, treated unfairly, things have gone poorly for her. And throughout this, we feel empathy and sympathy for the situation that Sarah finds herself in. But on a couple of occasions, Sarah steps to the foreground, not so much in this painting, actually, sorry, the shadows are a bit bleak here. This is Sarah over on the side in the shadows. When Sarah steps to the foreground and has a voice of her own, we see that she's capable of meanness and harshness, particularly in the way that she treats Abraham's concubine, Hagar, and Ishmael, her son. It's become a bit of a running joke uh, in Bible study that, that they think that I'm hard on Sarah. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't have anything against Sarah, but I want to acknowledge that she's a complicated figure. Because so often uh, she's portrayed in kids' Bibles like as just this sweet, smiling, grandmotherly old lady, and she's much, much more than that. She lives for 127 years, and we just get these brief snapshots of what her life looks like. And I think that as quickly as the, the, the text here, we move on from her death, it's worth commemorating that this is a picture who is honoured in the New Testament, whose name means princess, who is part of the people of God, and yet at the same time we've seen her capable of hostility and meanness that would you know, make us think, I'm not sure I want you in my life. But here we have not so much the focus on Sarah, but rather what's going to happen with Sarah's body. That's really the focus of this story. Now, a little bit of background here. Sarah has been with Abraham for a number of years. They've, they've wandered all up and down the promised land that was given to, that uh, God has said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, along the way, they've become very, very wealthy. And again, Sarah would have been blessed by this, but at the same time, she has suffered uh, the most as Abraham has gotten wealthy. It's often been through Sarah being put in danger and Sarah's suffering that's led to this blessing of wealth upon Abraham. Nevertheless, it's clear here in his grief for her that he cared about her and it says here that after his mourning, he rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. Why is he doing this? Well, it's because, like I just said, he has wandered all over this promised land, but at this point, he has no actual land of his own. He has no legal claim on any land that's actually his. He's been a wanderer for this entire time, and now he needs to actually secure some land so that he can bury his wife Sarah. 
So you can sort of see in this box here, this is the, the geographic space that we're working in here. Uh, just down here is Hebron and Mamre. That's the place that we're going to. Abraham's kind of lived through this region most recently, but now he's moved into this space here. Sorry, the picture's not real clear. It's hard to find good Bible maps. So it says this when he goes and speaks to these Hittites about trying to secure some land in their territory. He starts negotiations like this. I'm an alien and a stranger with you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Right, now, there's, there's some stuff going on here. We've got to work through this slowly to sort of really pull it, pull it out. Okay. First up, it's really clear here how courteous and respectful both sides are being to each other. Right? Abraham's coming and he's acknowledging his weakness before them. I'm an alien and a sojourner. I'm not one of you. I understand that. This is your place. And so he takes a very humble posture as he comes before them. But they are equally courteous and respectful in their response to him. They say, you are a mighty prince amongst us. Literally, it says, you are a prince of God. That's the the literal translation. There's an acknowledgement from them that the Lord is with Abraham. Now, they weren't necessarily followers of the Lord themselves, but they had some understanding that Abraham was clearly a blessed man. But what's interesting is, despite the fact that they're being very courteous and respectful to one another, there's actually a difference of opinion that's going on here. Abraham has asked for a plot of land to bury his wife. And they say, we'll make you a counter-offer, essentially. We won't give you land, but you can bury your wife in the choicest of our tombs. He wants to purchase land... They say, no, you can bury her with our people. They're not super keen on having this mighty prince be a landowner amongst them. He's just said he's a sojourner and an alien. And they're not initially that keen to all of a sudden have him become essentially one of them as an owner of this land that he'd be dwelling in, or at least where Sarah would be residing. So Abraham hears this. And he responds graciously and courteously again. Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land. This is a public debate. Everyone's watching this. This is not just happening behind closed doors. This is not the room where it happened. Okay, This is out in the open where everyone can see. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Again, he's acknowledging that they've been courteous with him. They're willing to let him bury his dead amongst them, but he is very specific about what he wants. He is not just looking to leave Sarah's body with them. He wants to secure a place that he knows will be his for her to be in. And he's specific, right? He knows who owns the land, and he knows exactly the cave that he wants. Alright? So again, Abraham, gracious, respectful, recognizing he's an alien, a sojourner amongst them, but at the same time very determined and clear about what it is that he wants in these negotiations. And he says, I'm willing to pay the sticker price. Okay? I'm not looking for a discount. Alright? Whatever you want, I'm going to pay that. I'll pay the full price for it. 
Now, it just so happens that our man Ephron the Hittite is there among the people. Alright? Love it when you just refer to yourself in the third person. Abraham's like, you know, say to Ephron. Oh, he's right there. Yeah, great. He's sitting among his people, and he replies to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Now, at first glance, this seems to be a very gracious offer here from Ephron. Again, he's respectful. He calls him my lord. He's acknowledging the, the, the wealth and the mightiness that Abraham has. But it, and, and it seems like on first glance that he's insisting that he just receive not just the cave, but the field. Three times he says to you, I'll give it to you. Alright, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. But there's some stuff as we look at what happens here that suggests that maybe this isn't quite, you know, the offer that we're uh, thinking it might be. See, if he gives him the land, then there's some evidence that in the legal sort of circles of the day and that sort of stuff, that that would kind of put Abraham under obligation to Ephron. That Ephron has, has given him this gift and now there'd sort of be the sense that Abraham owes him. They'd not be sort of equal landowners here, but rather there'd be a sense in which Abraham sort of still owed something to Ephron. And Abraham seems to know this because he's not super keen on just getting this gift. And, and you'll see how clear he is that he doesn't just want to receive it as a gift because of the way that he comes back again and says, bowing down, respectful again, acknowledging that he is a guest and a visitor here. He says, listen to me if you will. I will pray, pay the price of the field. Okay, I was just looking for a cave. You're offering me the field. I'll pay full price for the field. Accept it from me so that I can bury my dead there. Strange move, right? If somebody's making you just a generous gift and you turn around and you're like, no, no, I'll pay full price for the whole thing. I was just looking for a cave and I'll give you the, the money for the whole field. So, Ephron answers again very graciously, but something else seems to be going on here. Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead there. Now again, on the surface, it looks like Ephron's being really generous. Look, man, like, this is the price, but what's, you know, we're friends. It's cool, right? 400 shekels of silver. Always tough to figure these things out, but probably about 100 grand in today's money. I don't know about you guys, but if I came to you, I was like, yeah, yeah, take it. What's 100 grand between you and me? You're like, yeah. And again, Abraham sees what's going on here. We've got a price on the table now. Alright? We, we, we're, we're being gracious, we're being courteous to another, that's all really, really good, but there's clearly now a price out there, and Abraham takes this as the actual offer. So it says, uh, the 400 shekels, 100,000 there. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. Alright, so we've got this very courteous, Negotiation that takes place. Everyone is being respectful to one another. Abraham is a stranger and an alien amongst them. He's in a position of weakness and vulnerability, yet he's also a person of great wealth and privilege. And we get to this point where he legally secures the land. And, and the text kind of emphasizes the legal nature of this. It says it a couple of times. So Ephron's field and Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was legally made over to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. All right? 
Afterwards, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron. Very clear about where this is, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were legally made over to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Okay? Why is the text emphasizing the fact that this is now Abraham's land legally? Well, I've kept something back. Okay? There's actually something particular about this land. All right? it's, it's the, the location of it is listed a few times, and that's because this isn't just any sort of grave site. There's some significance here to this location for Abraham, because this is very near the spot where God promised Abraham all that his eyes could see way back in Genesis chapter 13. When God made that promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you all of this land, it was very near this spot. And in fact, Abraham goes and builds an altar right here. So after in Genesis 13, God promises him all this. It says in verse 18, So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. This now is Abraham's first legal claim on land within the much bigger territory of the promised land that God had said was going to be his. If the birth of Isaac was the seed finally starting to sprout on that promise that God was going to make a great nation out of Abraham's peoples, the securing of this land is the first sprouting of God's promise that I'm going to give you all of this promised land. Right? So that's that's the, that's the story in general. But I, I want to kind of acknowledge, it's, it feels like kind of a, a funny one to in, include. Like, the, God isn't even really mentioned. I said before we had a snapshot of Sarah's life. We've got a, a snapshot of different things in Abraham's Like, Why is it that this little bit here makes the cut, this negotiation for the burial here? Now, I think on one level, for sure, it's about the fact that Abraham has secured some of the promised land. But I've got to admit, as I read through this passage, as interesting as it is that Abraham worked hard to secure this land legally, so that it was beyond the dispute the property of Abraham, at the same time, this doesn't feel as though Abraham's just craftily trying to get himself into the Canaanite real estate market. Like that, that it's, it's, it's more interesting than that. It's not just about Abraham getting the land. I'm fascinated by the way that Abraham operates in this space where he identifies himself as being an alien and a sojourner amongst these people, and yet at the same time, he's identified as being a mighty prince. So I want to think about, under these four categories, fairly quickly here, what we might take away from this passage and think about what it means for us to live as people who are wealthy and aliens and sojourners in the land. So let's start off uh, with this idea of the foreign prince and the grave. So, like I said, Abraham in this passage identifies himself as being an alien and a sojourner amongst them. He's a foreigner who's come into their territory to find a place for the dead. This is about a grave site, and they honor him as a mighty prince. That, that's kind of a, the, the summary statement for this passage, right? A foreign mighty prince comes to negotiate for a grave. And it's pretty cool the way that Abraham does this. It's, it's an interesting, engaging bit of dialogue. There's some back and forth. There's some neat stuff going on there. But the thing is, when we read through the Old Testament, we've always got to look for key words and ideas that help us recognize how maybe this is pointing us towards Jesus. And the idea of a mighty prince or a prince of God should just start setting triggers, right? Like, hey, 
I know of another mighty prince, a prince of God, by the name of Jesus. But here's where it gets interesting, right? Despite the fact that there's kind of a link there, what Abraham and what Jesus does with regards to a grave here is very, very different. See, Abraham is the foreign prince who really wisely and smoothly negotiates to secure a burial spot for the dead. But it says there in that very first line of this chapter that when Abraham rose up, Sarah stayed in the grave. But Jesus, as we stand and look from the other side of the cross, is the mighty prince, the prince of God, who went to the place of the dead, who went into the grave himself. But when he rose up from the place of the dead, he did not leave the dead laying there still, but rather he brought them with him. Jesus came into this world as an alien and a sojourner. He came from above into this place to deal with the dead, but he didn't come to secure a final burial spot for them. He came to raise them up. So it says here in Romans 6, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The way that Abraham is described should make us think about Jesus, but at the same time, Abraham's not Jesus. Jesus does something that Abraham never even thought about. This great foreign prince, this prince of God, this mighty one, recognized for his wealth and his power, at no point was the idea of raising the dead even considered. But that is exactly what our prince of peace, our mighty one, did when he came into this world. He came to rescue and raise the dead. And that is the new life that is offered to all of us who believe in Jesus. And what we need to understand is that, just like sort of Abraham points us towards Jesus here, we share some similarities with Abraham as part of the people of God now. God blessed Abraham incredibly during his lifetime when he did not deserve it. We've seen it again and again. The way he treated Sarah was horrible. And yet God blessed him again and again. And we Christians have been blessed incredibly beyond even what Abraham have. Not necessarily in sheep and cattle, not necessarily in being around to throw around 400 shekels like it's nothing, but rather the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. I want to read these. I'm going to, it, this is a long sentence in Greek. It's a, it's, it's a few verses here, but I want you guys to be reminded again of the weight of the wealth that we have in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. 
These riches are so much greater than what Abraham had. And Abraham understood this. Abraham knew that there was a greater fulfillment to come. We hear him say, we hear the author of Hebrews say in chapter 11. Abraham would have traded all of it to receive the blessing that we have now in Christ. You may not think that you are wealthy in terms of a worldly measurement, but in Christ you are wealthy beyond compare through what Jesus has done for us. And so we as Christians are like Abraham. We are vastly wealthy. But we're also like Abraham, aliens and strangers. This is the Apostle Peter now writing himself. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, you Christians that I'm writing to, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives, good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Does not Abraham conduct himself in such a way that God is honored in the way that he deals with the Hittites? He's called Prince of God. God's favor is upon him. God is represented well by Abraham in these passages. He hasn't always done that. But here... He absolutely is. And so there's this sense here that we Christians have this same dual identity that Abraham has. That we are at once weak and vulnerable in this world because we are strangers and aliens in it. Our true home is in heaven. Our true home is with the Father. In this world today, we do not rule. A time is coming when we're promised when, when Christ does unite all things under his head where it says we will reign with Christ in eternity. But that time ain't yet. Right now, as we live in this world, we still need to recognize we are aliens and sojourners in it. And there's a weakness and a vulnerability that comes with that that should affect our posture in this world, where we take the same example of humility that Abraham does. Acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging the difference, recognizing the powers that exist. And yet, at the same time, because of the vast wealth that we have in Christ, as we live and operate in this world humbly, vulnerably, acknowledging that this is not our home and that we do not yet reign here, we can operate in this world with the security of the wealth that we have in Christ. That we don't come begging to the world. We don't come willing to simply go with whatever the world wants us to do but rather we can stand firm, as Abraham does in this passage, to secure what it is that we're seeking. And I, there's a lot going on in culture right now, as far as how Christians operate in this world. We've seen different pieces of legislation being introduced across Australia and across the world that, are, that is affecting how Christians can live and operate. We've seen the recent Victorian legislation, there's other different bills that are in different stages that would limit Christians in some way or another to to preach the gospel or to teach what the Bible says or to restrict the way that things happen. At some point, the issue of like uh, churches and the way that we're taxed and all that sort of stuff, that's going to come back up again. This is just going to keep happening. We're going to be in a situation where we're going to have to negotiate with the powers of this world for things that we want. And if we start acting like this is our turf and that we reign over all things and that we have some sort of right to all of this stuff just because we're the people of God, man, that's such a bad example. That's a bad witness. 
Now that's Abraham here acknowledges he's an alien and a sojourner, but because of the great wealth that he has, he's able to negotiate. He doesn't simply back down. He doesn't just simply take what's on offer as they make their counter off and bury her in a tomb. He's still willing to push for what he is seeking, but he does so in a way that's continually gracious and respectful. He pays the reasonable price that they're asking for. And so what I think is that this passage is, is encouraging us to operate in this world where we are aliens and sojourners in a way that we recognize the great wealth that we have so we don't feel as though we simply get beat up and moved all over by the different powers and forces that we face. But rather we operate humbly but with the great security of knowing what we have in Christ and that nothing can take that away. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that's in Christ Jesus. Neither height nor depth, neither famine nor nakedness nor sword. Nothing. And so if I lose something in this world, I can live with that because I know the great wealth that I have in Christ. And so we've got got to lay hold of this dual identity. We are both aliens and sojourners and vastly wealthy. And that enables us to operate in this world in a way where we are both humble and firm and strong, both aliens and sojourners and princes of the one true God. And if we can keep that in mind, that will give us a healthy framework for operating in all sorts of spaces in this world. And we're going to pray that we do that now. Father God, thank you so much that you sent Jesus into this world and that he did not leave us in the grave, but he has risen all those who believe in you up with him. We thank you for the incredible gift that this is. We thank you, Father, that we have a new home, that we are aliens and sojourners now, but with the promise of an eternal home with you. Please help us to walk humbly in this world by your spirit, recognizing that this is not our turf, but at the same time, Lord, recognizing the vast wealth that we have in Christ and that we would move in this world where we are willing to, to, to pursue things, to be firm, to be strong, and yet at the same time do so graciously and humbly before all that we may, before all the people in the land and that in doing so we would give honor and glory to you. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.